Well, good morning, everyone. I'm really glad that you're joining with us here as we continue on in this series called Rooted. And the whole idea of this series is just this, that we need some practices, that we need some actions, and that we need some rhythms that can really ground us in an shaky and an uncertain world, that that's what we need. And so we've taken a look already at the practice of prayer and how that can root you in God and in Jesus and hearing his voice so that you can actually live well in a shaky and uncertain world. And today we wanna to shift things a little bit and we wanna take a look at a new practice, a practice that is called for every Christian to actually live out with their lives. And that's the practice of caring. Because can we be honest with this, okay? Christians are called to be caring, amen? They're called to be caring. Christians are called to be caring. This is who we are meant to be. This is how we are meant to live and to respond in the world that we are a part of. And so today I wanna to explore a new practice of caring and how that can ground you in a shaky and in an uncertain world. And we're gonna take a look today at really the theology and the reasons why we must practice caring as Christians. And then next week, as I shared a few weeks ago, we're really gonna be taking a look at the practice of how. How do you practically care for people? How do you care for your family, your friends, and your neighbors? And to do all of this today, I wanna to begin with really a really famous story of Jesus. It's a story that many of you will have heard before. And even if you aren't a follower of Jesus, we're so glad that you are checking out uh, our church and checking out how to follow Jesus with us together. But you might be familiar with the story as well because it's just that famous. And it's the story of the Good Samaritan found in Luke 10. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you open them up to Luke 10 today. Now what I wanna do is I wanna take a look at this story and just work it through really piece by piece by piece, exploring what it means for you and exploring what it means for me, and especially looking at it through that lens of the need and necessity for Christians to be a caring people. And so I wanna begin by just reading the first verse and then we're gonna make a few comments and just keep working our way through. So we read this. One day, an expert in the religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. He says, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life. He says, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And the first thing that I want to notice about this story and about what we're about to read and encounter and work through is that all of this is really set in the context of salvation. I just wanna point that out because I believe that this matters immensely if we're gonna correctly interpret this passage, interpret what it means for you and for me and how to live it out, that this passage is really set in the context of salvation because what does the man ask? He asks, how do, should I live to inherit eternal life? He's really asking Jesus. He says, in the kind of the age to come, in the world that God is making, in the future that God has in store for all of us, in this kind of new heaven and new earth idea that will be upon us, he wants to know, how do I live today so that I can receive that in the future? Okay, that's the question. How do I live today so that I can receive that in the future? And he makes it clear with that word inherit. And literally in Greek, what that word means is actually inheriting something from someone that you are connected to. So the big kind of context or idea in this passage is this, just this. How do I live in such a way today that I'm connected to God so I can make sure that I can receive from him in the future, in heaven, and what he has for me in the new age to come? That's what's going on here. The religious expert wants to test Jesus by asking him, how do I live today so I can receive what God has for me in the future? And Jesus, when he hears this question, do you know what he does? He refuses really to answer it. Because this is just true. Some questions, have you ever noticed this? That some questions are actually asked in bad faith. That in some questions, they really aren't like questions, really what they are, they are like tests, they're like traps, they're, they're questions that are designed to put you in a category of somebody else, right? That's what's going on here um, with this teacher of the religious law. The text actually says that he's using this question to test Jesus 
So Jesus doesn't want to give this man a straightforward answer because this is just true. If somebody asks a question in bad faith, sometimes it's really not even wise to give a straight answer back. So Jesus actually pushes the action back on the teacher of religious law, this expert in the religious law. And Jesus asks him a question in return. That's what goes on. He says, well, how do you read it? What do you think? That's what Jesus asks the man. And the man responds. He says this. He says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. This is a religious expert's answer. And this answer is a perfectly good answer. It is a standard answer. In many ways, it's kind of the expected answer. And so Jesus Again, not really wanting to quite engage with what's going on here. Because I think he knows that this expert in the religious law, he has an agenda behind the questions. Maybe you've sensed that sometimes too if you've been asked something. There's an agenda going on here. So Jesus answers just shortly and quickly. He says, right, do this and you will live. So what Jesus is saying here is really clear. That if you want to live, and if you want to actually live in such a way that today you can inherit what God has for you in the future, in eternity, in heaven, and all of that, Right? He says you really need to do two things. You need to love the Lord your God. You need to love your neighbor as yourself. This is what Jesus is affirming. This is the way that we are called to live if we're going to receive what God has for us. But this religious expert, actually this answer of Jesus, it's not enough for him. Right? That it's still too vague. It's still too open-ended. That really what this kind of expert wants to do is he wants to nail down Jesus into one of his categories. So he pushes it a little bit. He asks another question. He wants to really kind of paint Jesus into a corner to see exactly what it is that he might say. So uh, the man says this. He says that the man wanted to justify his actions. So what that means is, is that he wants to justify how he is living. He wants confirmation and affirmation for how he has already chosen to live his life. That's what he's looking for. So he asks Jesus, he says this, and who is my neighbor. And here, here I think I've seen something that I've actually encountered many times. That sometimes when someone asks a question, they aren't actually really interested in an answer. They're interested actually in having their way of life already confirmed and affirmed so that they don't have to change. That's what this man is looking for here. He's actually not really all that interested in Jesus's points. What he's interested in is having his own actions justified, his own preconceptions confirmed. He's actually pretty committed to actually not changing whatsoever. That's what's going on in this passage. But Jesus here, Jesus here is gonna make the man feel a little bit uncomfortable. He's actually gonna challenge some of his preconceived ideas and convictions and all of that. Because this is just true and this may be I don't know. This may be one of the most important things I say over the entire thing today is that Jesus, follow with me, Jesus is more interested in our growth and Christ-likeness than our comfort and convenience. Okay? Let me say that again. That Jesus is much more interested in our growth and Christ-likeness than our comfort and our convenience. But this man here in this passage, he wants to actually stay exactly as he is. He is looking for certainty in a complex world, but Jesus is going to challenge him because this is just true, that for us to grow, we need to move into spaces of discomfort. That that is often, that is often where the Holy Spirit does his best work, where we are unsure and actually have some discomfort and some complexity to face. And Jesus is going to make sure that this man feels that. And we might feel it as well as we hear what it is what he says. So Jesus answers the man with this. And I wanna to read to you the story that Jesus says, and he replies with a story. And then we're gonna work it through a little bit here together. So Jesus replied with a story. This is his reply to that man's question. He says this, a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him up and they left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along 
But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and he passed him by. A temple assistant also walked over and he looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine, and he bandaged them. And when he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, the next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. And Jesus then turns to this expert in the religious law, this highly religious, motivated individual, and he asks this question. Now, which? Which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked him. And the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. And so as I said, we have here a very famous story that many people have encountered before. I want to walk through it a little bit today to learn a little bit more about how we are called to be caring to others. And so what we see is Jesus tells us a story of a man who is traveling. And I've actually been on that road that this man is traveling in Israel. And this road that this man is traveling where he gets attacked by bandits, it's actually quite narrow. It's actually a space with lots of twists and turns and it is very easy to be kind of jumped and to be attacked without being aware. And this was a really um, real present danger for people in that day and age. And so when we are picturing the scene, what it tells us is that a priest comes alongside this man and he sees him and he goes to the other side of the road. But what I want to name and just mention with this is that when we were picturing the scene, we need to picture like less like the roads we're familiar with, like the QEW, like that's not the kind of size that we are talking about. Instead, what we really should be picturing is, we should be picturing like a grocery aisle, like a few feet, that for this man to actually kind of step around him, for the priest to step around the hurt and dying man on the road, like this was not a simple thing to do. He actually had to very consciously step around him, perhaps over him, and to avoid him in a really uh, intentional way. And the text doesn't tell us exactly why is it that this priest takes this decision. Why does he not step and to actually look at this man and to help him who is clearly beaten and bloodied and dying next to him? Why does he not do that? There are some like theories for it. Some people believe that if this man had died and if he was dead, and if the temple priest you know, touched him, he would become ritually unclean which means that if he was heading you know, towards his duties at the temple, he wouldn't be able to perform them. If he was heading home, he wouldn't be able to enter into his home. There would be a whole set of rituals that would need to be done. But regardless of this man's reasons for why he steps around somebody who is clearly in need, what we can probably say is this, is that the priest felt it was too much of a risk to engage in caring and helping for this man. Right? I think that's what this text kind of shows, that this priest, for whatever reason, he felt it was too much of a risk for him to engage and to help with this dying and hurting man that he sees. The temple assistant comes next, and it's the same similar sort of thing. He actually, it says, goes over and kind of looks. He assesses things, but he still chooses not to engage. He still chooses to create distance between him and the person in need. And that's what we see happening here in this passage. And you can imagine, you can imagine if you're hearing this and you were Jewish, you can imagine how this might already start to get under your skin a little bit. Because here Jesus is kind of showing, and he's intentionally choosing, two highly religious people who are involved in the religious system of the day. And he's intentionally implying that these two people are missing the point, right? And then Jesus names a third person who shows up. And what does the text tell us? The text tells us that the third person who shows up is a despised Samaritan. A despised Samaritan. 
And this is a really good description because in that day and age, Jewish people despise Samaritans. They were seen as like a half-breed. They were seen as betrayers. They were seen as false worshipers. They were not seen as people you would ever associate with. These are people who are completely on the outcasts. These are people that the Jewish people would hate. And there's also hate going backwards too between the Samaritans towards the Jewish people. That what sometimes happens, and we see this in our day and age consistently too, is that what sometimes happens is the people you hate aren't like radically different than you, but just different enough, right? That you might agree on a lot, but they're kind of seen as betrayers to the core true values that you hold, right? So we see these kind of animosities between groups that are actually quite similar because the Jewish people and the Samaritan people in many respects were quite similar, but there's a lot of animosity there. And we see this today too. We see this between like uh, progressive Christians and conservative Christians. We can see this today also too uh, between like Catholics or with Protestants. We can see this in other religions as well between like Sunni Muslims and Shia Muslims. Or we can see this in like our you know, present day world and culture. Sometimes you see the animosity between Canadians and Americans or even between like liberals and conservatives. But really, many of these groups actually, uh, all of those groups I just named, they have so much in common, really they do. But it's the differences that cause a space for unique amount of hate. Because what can happen is um, when you're this close, it can breed contempt. And then you can see that group, that rival as a betrayal of what you hold dearly. And this is what's going on here with between the Jews uh, and the Samaritans in this story, is that the Jewish people really despise the Samaritans as seeing them as real betrayers of the true faith, as kind of half-breeds. This is why then when they would talk about Samaritans, they would often talk about them in dehumanized ways. Because this is what we do to people that we don't like. We talk about them not as people, but as like objects, as things, or animals, or whatever it may be. And this is a real problem. So what we see here is there would have been, as soon as Jesus mentions the fact, a despised Samaritan, there would have been like a real reaction from the crowd, like a palpable reaction, a reaction of strong disgust and hate and prejudice that would have come out uh, right away, okay? This is, this is an old show, um, but maybe it'll give you an idea of what we're talking about. There's an old show called Corner Gas, and for a while in Corner Gas, whatever would happen is whenever anybody would name the town of Wolverton, they would like spit out of disgust, right? That's the kind of emotion that's, you know, it's a funny way of looking at it, but that's the kind of emotion that would be running deep, really deeply in this moment and in the crowd and in the people hearing the story. So what we see is a despised Samaritan shows up and the crowd would probably all agree, yes, this person is despised. And then Jesus tells of how the Samaritan, though, goes about doing an act of caring and compassion that the two religious individuals totally missed, right? It says in the text that the Samaritan felt compassion for the man. That word compassion is one we've explored before. It's splagnizomai. And what it really means is that gut punch of compassion, that feeling deep within you where you see something, you're like, this is wrong. I must do something to help. And that's what the Samaritan does. He actually responds to the feelings of compassion. Let's read exactly what he does because it is quite amazing and it is quite astounding. It says, going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and he bandaged them. And then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. And what we see here is the Samaritan then really taking on the responsibility for caring for someone that he has never met. And not only does he care for him, he cares for him with the depth of sacrifice. It says that he pays for him. Look at the expense. Look at the trouble he goes to. 
In fact, the NLT, uh, the translation I just read, it actually obscures this a little bit, but it's much clearer in the Greek, actually, that this man who is uh, the Good Samaritan, he's on a journey, actually. He has somewhere to be. He has a destination, but he interrupts his life to be able to care for somebody that he encounters. And so Jesus, he really makes the Samaritan the real paragon of virtue in the story. And so he pushes the issue, really, with this uh, teacher of religious law, this expert in the law. And he says to him, he says, now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who is attacked by bandits? Let's remember what Jesus is really saying here. He's asking this teacher of religious law, who here is fulfilling the law of God? Because that's what the story is about, right? That you are to love the Lord your God and also your neighbor, right? So Jesus is asking this man, who here is really fulfilling the law of God? Who is acting in a godly way? Who is actually following the rules that God has set out? And the man, this religious expert, listen to what he says. He says, the one who showed him mercy. Now, if you notice in this passage, I actually think that this moment here, that this man's words, they are dripping still with hate, with venom, and with disdain. That's what I think it is. I don't think he's happy to have to name this fact at all. He says, the one who showed him mercy. Because you might not notice it, but did you notice here? When he says, the one who showed him mercy, what can't he name? He can't even say the word Samaritan. He doesn't even talk about this Samaritan in personal terms. He still is using distance with him because there is no way that this teacher of religious law and an expert in the law can actually say that the Samaritan was good, that the Samaritan was like holy because the Samaritan was good and holy because Jesus is actually naming the fact that he is the example we should be following. But this um, teacher of religious law, he so hates the Samaritans that he can't even name them. He can't even talk about them in a personal terms. Instead, he just says the one who showed him mercy. He can't even say the Samaritan was the good one. The Samaritan was the right one. The Samaritan was the righteous one. And so Jesus, Jesus says, yes, that is true. Now go and do likewise. And with this, what Jesus does is he takes somebody that was truly wrapped up in dogma and convictions and really categories that were pretty firm, right? The teacher of religious law. And what he does is he kind of upends them by saying that really here, really here the hero of the story is someone that this person hated. And the story kind of comes to a close. Now, I think when we hear the story in church, we often cheer Jesus for this master storytelling, and it is, he is truly a master of storytelling. And we actually cheer the Samaritan because this is what we are called to be like. And I think when we read this story, what we often read it through is we read it through the lens of like morality. That as Christians, we are called to act like the good Samaritan. That this is a really good moral story of Jesus for how we are to respond, for how we are to live, and how we are to act in our world. I think that is true. I think that's absolutely true. We are called to live this way. But I think if we approach this story only through the lens of morality, we actually miss some of its challenge. We actually miss some of its conviction. We actually miss some of its, if we put it this way, some of its teeth, actually. Because this story, follow with me, it's not just about being a good person or a good citizen or a good Christian. That's not the context of the story. What is the context of the story that we are encountering today? Where do we begin at the very beginning? The context is what? The context is a question about salvation, is it not? Right? That's where everything begins. Right? This context of this entire encounter is set in the context of salvation. 
that the teacher of religious law, what he asks is, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? What kind of way do I need to live today that I can then participate in God's world to come, in the age to come? This entire encounter and episode and really narrative is all set in the context of salvation. So when we read it, it is not just about, you know, do this and this is a good thing to do. In fact, it's much stronger than that. What Jesus is teaching is this, follow with me. Jesus is teaching the kinds of people who will inherit the world to come. And according to Jesus, the kinds of people who will inherit the world to come, who will live into eternity, who will live in such a way today that they're connected to God to receive what he has in the next world, right? The kinds of people who inherit the world to come are kind, merciful, compassionate, caring people. Anyone want to say amen to that? And you should because that's what Jesus is teaching, right? That if you want to enter into the world to come, who do you need to act like, according to this story? You need to act like the good Samaritan, someone who is kind, merciful, compassionate, and caring. Jesus is showing to us not only the kinds of lives that we are called to live, but follow with me, the kind of life we are required to live if we are going to be faithful Christians and to inherit the world to come. You can imagine them. You can imagine that when Jesus actually taught this story, some of the reaction of the crowd. Because what Jesus is strongly implying here, really, what he's strongly implying is that two Jewish professional like, leaders in the religious system, like they miss out on the world to come. And who actually is part of it? The Samaritan. He instead fulfills the law that the two Jewish leaders are missing. What Jesus here is really showing, I think in a very clear way, if we would pay attention to it, and it can be uncomfortable, it can be a bit disconcerting, but it is true, is that no matter how religious you are, is that no matter your orthodoxy, your creeds, and your credentials, no matter how much time you might spend at church or whatever, that if, follow with me, if we are not willing to love our neighbor, we cannot inherit the world that God has for us. Or to put it positively, that if um, we care for others, we can live in such a way now to inherit eternal life that Jesus has for us in the future. That's what's going on in this passage. It is not just about the kinds of lives we are called to live. There's also within it the consequences for what happens if we choose not to live this way. And what this passage is really about, Jesus is teaching, is that if you want to inherit eternal life, you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and then you also need to love your neighbor as yourself. That if you're not willing to look around at those people who are dying, and hurting, and vulnerable, and in need, and to treat them with care, compassion, mercy, that we will not inherit what God has for us. That's the real challenge in this passage, is that for Christians, we are required to be caring. That's part of what it means to follow Jesus, that for Christians, we are required to be caring. So what does this all mean for us today? What I think we really show here, um, what Jesus is really showing, is that it is impossible to fulfill that first law of loving God unless you actually do love your neighbor. That's the challenge of this passage. And what it does for us then is it actually moves us, follow with me, it moves us away from focusing in on our beliefs and our doctrines to our actions and our responses. That's what the real challenge of this story. It invites us to look inward at our lives and to think, not just what do I say I believe, but what do I actually do? How do I actually live? And do I live with care, with compassion, with mercy, and with kindness? Because follow with me, the teacher of the religious law, the expert who brings these questions forward to Jesus, he had all the right theology. He had all the right doctrine. He had all the right religious stuff, 
But what he was missing, what he was missing was care, compassion, mercy, and kindness. And for Jesus, and for Jesus, these things are required. We need to live with care, compassion, mercy, and kindness. This is the calling of Christ upon our lives. So today, so today, what is my main point from the story? Well, first thing I want to say is that this story is incredible. This story, there's lots to it. But I think what we can pull out of it for Christians, what I think we can name really clearly, is that caring is required for Christians. That's what I'd like to say. Okay, that's what I think this story really shows, uh, that caring is required for Christians, that for us to truly say we love God, guess what? We also have to love our neighbors. It is not enough to simply say that we actually believe in God. We must also live with care and compassion and kindness to those around us. That's what this passage highlights. I'd also like to say, too, is that not only does this passage really highlight the fact that caring, kindness, and compassion is required by Christians, it's actually spoken about throughout the scriptures as well. Let me read to you just some other passages that highlight the real requirement and necessity for Christians to actually be caring to those around them. I want to read to you a few different verses that highlight this same thing. In Ephesians, we read this. This is Paul speaking. He's just being straight. He says, be kind to one another. Be kind to one another. Be tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. That as we receive forgiveness from Jesus, what is expected of us is that we would show that forgiveness to others. We would show that same level of kindness, care, and compassion towards others. These here are commands. That's what they are. Be kind to each other, tender-hearted, and forgiving. Isn't that what we need in our day and age? Or listen to 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Take tender care of those who are weak. Be patient with everyone. We also read this in 1 Thessalonians. But we don't need to write to you about the importance of loving each other. For God himself has taught you to love one another. This is a calling of Christians, to love one another, to act with care, with kindness, with mercy and compassion. Or 1 John 3.11 says this. This is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another another. Or first John, if you actually read the entire book, it actually gets even more explicit and says that if we don't practice these things of care and compassion, we're actually showing that God's love isn't actually a part of us, that we haven't been changed and transformed by his love. He says this, he says, we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. Someone should say amen to that. This is what we know love looks like. It looks like sacrifice. That's what it looks like. And we know that God loves us because of what Jesus has done. So then he says, there's a next step, that if we receive this, he says, so we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. We have to sacrifice for them. And we'll take a look at that in two weeks. And he says this though, if someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need, but shows no compassion, but there is no feelings of compassion. There is no feelings of kindness, mercy, gentleness. Listen to what he says. How can God's love be in that person. That what Jesus wants to tie together and that what the Apostle John wants to tie together is that if you love God, that will be seen and demonstrated in the fact that you actually love others as well. That's what this is highlighting, that caring is required for Christians, that caring is necessary for Christians, that to be kind, to be caring, to be gentle and in self-control, okay? To be humble, to be gracious, these things are not being weak. These things are being Christ-like, and we need to regain them. 
And so what we have seen really is that this has been a part of scripture from the beginning. We are called to do this. But what you also know is if you stay attention to any history is that the fact that Christians have been and are called to be caring is what has actually changed so much of the world. It is actually what caused people to accept Christ way back in the beginning. I want to read to you some of the accounts of how it's the care of Christians in the early church and in the very beginning first centuries of the world that led to the explosion of Christianity. It is the care of Christians that proved the reality of Christ. It's the care of Christians that proved the reality of Christ. Let me read to you a little bit from Rodney Stark, okay? He is a scholar and a historian, and he makes the case, actually, that the reason that there is an explosion in people turning towards Christ and accepting salvation is because of the deep caring that Christians showed, especially, especially in a health crisis. So we read this, okay? He says, in the year um, 165, during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, a devastating epidemic swept through the Roman Empire. Some medical historians suspected that this was the first appearance of smallpox in the West. Whatever the actual disease, it was lethal, as many contagious diseases are when they strike a previously unexposed population. During the 15-year duration of the epidemic, a quarter to a third of the, pop of the population probably died of it. At the height of the epidemic, mortality was so great that in many cities that the emperor Marcus Aurelius, who subsequently died of the disease, he wrote of caravans and caravans of carts and wagons hauling out the dead. Then a century later came another great plague. Once again, the Greco-Roman world trembled as on all sides, families and friends and neighbors died horribly. No one knew how to treat the stricken and most people did not try. In fact, during the first plague, the famous classical physician Galen, he fled Rome for his country estate where he stayed until the danger subsided. But for those who could not flee, the typical response was to try to avoid any contact with the afflicted, since it was understood that the disease was contagious. Hence, when their first symptoms appeared, victims were often thrown into the streets where the dead and dying lay in piles. This was the context of the early church. But then look at the response of Christians. And this is what led to the massive explosion of people saying that Jesus Christ is real and true. The response of Christians, as Stark puts it, is this. He says, as for actions, Christians met the obligation to care for the sick rather than desert them and thereby saved enormous numbers of lives. Through their actions, enormous numbers of lives, both physically and spiritually, were saved. As William H. McNeil pointed out in his celebrated Plagues and People, under the circumstances prevailing in that era, even quite elementary nursing um, will greatly reduce mortality. Simple provision of food and water, for instance, will allow persons who are temporarily too weak to cope for themselves to recover instead of perishing miserably. Stark writes, it is entirely plausible that Christian nursing would have reduced mortality by as much as two-thirds. And it is this kind of action, it is this level of care and sacrifice it is this commitment to show mercy like the Good Samaritan that caused so many people to believe in Jesus. Because when everybody else was deserting the sick and the hurting and the vulnerable, the Christians moved in to care. And when they nursed them back to health, those people so often turned and said, I want to believe in the same God and Christ that has changed you. That because caring happened, it proved to people the reality of Christ. And this happened throughout the early church. In fact, um, in the fourth century, there was an emperor named Julian the Apostate because he tried to get paganism going again. 
But listen to why he couldn't get paganism going again. It's because of the caring of Christians. He says atheism, and here he's talking about the Christian faith, has been uh, especially advanced through the loving service, that's caring, rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. He says, it is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. This is what the early church was known for, for not only caring for their own poor, but for anyone else's as well. Well, he says this, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render to them. This is what Christianity looks like. It looks like caring across lines. It looks like showing mercy to anyone who needs it. It looks like caring for people, not only, as Julian the Apostate puts it, for their own, but for others as well. What I want to highlight as clearly and as unequivocally as I can is just this, that what Jesus commands us to do, that what Scripture commands us to do, and what history has taught us to do, is that Christians are called to be caring. This is not optional in the journey of faith. This is what we need to do. This is a necessary and required posture of Christians. We are called to be caring to those around us. So then, as always, as always, when we come here today, we have not only a main point, right? Uh, we have not only a main point, which is that caring matters and that caring is necessary and required for Christians, okay? There's always a challenge as well because we never come to just learn information. We come for transformation. So today, my challenge is quite clear, actually. My challenge is we need to be caring to those around us. Now, I really just believe that this is what our world needs. I don't know if you have seen this, but our world is terribly, terribly, terribly divided. There is so much hate and anger just uh, surfacing all over the place. And that what Christians are called to do in spaces like that, we are called to be caring people, caring across differences, caring across whatever theological, social, political lines there may be, we are called to be caring people because we are called by Jesus to do this. We are called by Jesus to do this. So my challenge then is just that. Would you be caring? The question is obviously like, how do you do this, right? Well, as I said, next week, I'm gonna teach you on this more practically. I'm actually gonna give you five actions that can help you in caring practically for your family, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, the people in like your hockey league, whatever may be going on. I'm gonna share with you some really practical things but today I wanna to give you three things from this story that I think can help us to at least get started. And they are feeling, responding, and sacrificing. That I think if you notice in the story, what you'll notice is that the first thing that we get taught by Jesus, by this parable of the Good Samaritan, is that the Good Samaritan feels compassion, right? And he actually pays attention to it. That he feels compassion and he pays attention to it. We read this, then a despised Samaritan came along and when he saw the man, he felt deep pity or he felt deep compassion. As I said, this is that word splagnizomai about getting hit in the gut with compassion. And what we see then is that this man pays attention to it. And as I've often shared, and we shared in the kindness series as well, is that whenever Jesus feels a feeling of compassion, he pays attention to it, and then he actually responds to it. And that's the second thing we see with this good Samaritan. He feels compassion, and then he responds to it. We read this, he says, kneeling beside him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with medicine and bandaged them. And then he put the man on his own donkey and he took him to an inn where he took care of him. So this man feels compassion and then he responds out of compassion. And what he does is he closes the distance between him and someone else. Notice with me, notice with me, he does whatever he can for this man. 
He makes caring for this man his responsibility. He doesn't need to. He could be like the other two people just stepping over him and pretending that he isn't there. But that isn't what we are called to do. And that isn't what the Good Samaritan does. He sees a need and he responds to that need. And then we see a third thing. He not only responds to the man, he actually sacrifices for him. He gives up something of himself for him. We read this. He says, the next day he handed the innkeeper two pieces of silver and told uh, him to take care of the man. If his bill runs higher than that, I'll pay the difference the next time I am here. So he really says to himself, I will actually take on the expense and the sacrifice to care for this person. And I think that's what caring looks like. It looks like feeling a feeling of compassion. It looks like them responding with compassion. And it certainly looks like sacrificing out of compassion. And so as we live and move in our days this week, I want to invite you to really be doing that, to really be paying attention for feelings and moments of compassion, where you can respond, where you can give, where you can sacrifice. I think this is our calling as Christians. We are called to be caring. And one way to begin is by noticing feelings of compassion, by responding with compassion, and then lastly, with sacrificing with compassion. And that's my challenge for you, and that's my challenge for me, because this is the challenge for every single Christian, that if we want to be true and faithful followers of Jesus, guess what? Caring is required. Caring matters. Caring is needed. Because in this passage, in this passage, Jesus gives us both a promise and a direction. I don't know if you noticed that. In this passage, he gives us both a promise and a direction. He says, for, he says, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Live with care and compassion. Live with mercy. And he says that if you do this, you will live. And that's the promise for each and every one of us. That if we live this way, we'll inherit not only what Jesus has for us today, but also in the future. But part of that is learning to love God and then to love our neighbors with care, with compassion, with mercy, and with kindness. May we show that this week. Let's pray. God, I ask, I ask might you continue to work within our hearts and to open them deeper to you and deeper to our family and our friends and our neighbors around. I pray, Lord, would we pay attention to moments where we are hit with that feeling of compassion. I pray, would caring be our posture? Would mercy be our words that we share with others? Would kindness be a habit and an action and a practice that we continue to show every single day of our lives? I pray that you will empower us in this. I pray that you will strengthen us in this. And I pray that you will give us the courage to follow you in this. May we truly love you, our Lord and Savior, with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. But then may that love then be shown in our love for our neighbors with kindness, with care, with compassion, and with mercy. And we pray this all in the wonderful name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen.